Well, today we are continuing our deep dive into the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 with the Apostle Paul. And turn my mic on here. So we will be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 41 today. And you can um, and you can read with me on the text here. I'll bring it up on the screen. Be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body of what is of, uh, that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Uh, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars Defer from star in glory. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, how we understand the self has radically changed over the last several hundred years. In ancient times, the understanding of of who we are just as human beings... Uh, was primarily understood through the lens of family, community, and religion. It's only been in the last 200 years or so that we started making a very real shift to begin saying, culturally at least, that we are not creatures made by a creator in his image with a soul, that we are rather uh, creatures um, along the lines of evolutionary thinking that we are descendants from the apes, animals who, who naturally developed complex thinking over time through survival of the fittest. As such, uh, according, according to this line of thought, uh, we can only truly understand ourselves behaviorally as complex animals, and, and we can only understand ourselves, therefore, psychologically, and even there, as most recently in the last 30, 40 years, um, or even 50 years now, uh, the only way to truly understand yourself psychologically is through sexual expression. Now that understanding, even there, going back to the sexual revolution of the 1970s and 60s, even that's been around for a long time at this point in modern terms. And and it's, it's out of date even. It's starting to ring hollow. And because if we are, because if we are anything, we are more than just physical beings who respond to primal urges or mere electrical impulses in our brains. You know, they've they've actually done studies where they hooked electrodes up to a person's brain and they send a certain electric impulse and it causes the person to raise their right arm. Okay, like they've done that. First, you're like, who volunteers for that? You're like, is it worth the hundred bucks like to do that? But uh, but. Uh, but they do that, and, and it's like, but what's interesting is even though they can do that, as one, uh, one scholar noted, said they were able to find the switchboard, but they can't 
find the operator. That while you can put electrodes in someone's brain and make their right arm go up, you cannot put an electrode in their brain and make them want to lift their right arm. You cannot put an electrode in the brain that will take the will, that will affect the will if you just do the right electric impulse. We can find the switchboard, but we cannot account for the operator. We cannot account for consciousness. And so, uh, and so we have no, it, there's no natural explanation for things like consciousness. But actually, Christians do have an example. They have an understanding. We have an explanation for things like consciousness and the will. And that is the soul. The soul that God creates and gives to his people, attaches to the human body, and that we have an understanding of humanity. And, that's what, and so that's essentially what we're going to talk about first, because before we get into Paul's argument here about resurrection and resurrection bodies, I thought it would be good to kind of um, get us really clear and get us make sure we're on the same page as we understand resurrection. But we need to understand, have, a, have a healthy biblical picture of what human life is. And so because people have gotten very confused, even believers can get very confused about the relationship between body and soul. And so we're going to spend the first part of the sermon today talking about bodies and souls. And then the second part, we're going to jump into Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, words here about resurrection bodies and what we can learn, actually, from uh, a healthy theology of creation. So we're going to begin today by uh, looking, at, by understanding, uh, refreshing our understanding of human life. And, and very simply put, this is not going to be a very complex thing, uh, at least in its points, but, uh, but human life is physical and spiritual, Human life is physical and spiritual, that you don't have human life if you remove the spiritual, and you don't have human life truly if you remove the physical and only have the spiritual. And, uh, and I'll, I'll attempt to make some sense of that. So, because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to make sense of three words that are found in the Bible, body, soul, and spirit. Have you ever wondered if soul and spirit are the same thing? Are they two different things? Why does there's a passage of Paul where he talks, he mentions body, soul, and spirit in one sentence? Um, And so, what are these things? And there are different understandings of them. Historically, there have been three views of body, soul, and spirit. And I'll uh, and I'm going to bring them up here. And I've actually got these defined on the uh, on the uh, on the back of the bulletin there. And actually went out and put wrote out the explanation of them on there, so you could have that. Uh, but uh, but there's three of them, and so it is uh, there. It's monism, dichotomy, and trichotomy. I'm going to explain what those are. So first, we're going to start with monism. This is the idea that um, that soul and spirit are essentially the same thing. And that is that, and so, and basically, the view of monism is, and, and if you think about monism, dichotomy, trichotomy, you can kind of see the words one, two, and three in there: mono, uh, die, and then try. So one, two, and three. So you can kind of guess a bit what's coming here. But uh, the idea of monism is that the, is the belief that the soul has no existence outside of the body. That is what monism is. Uh, this is, uh, and so if, if you've ever talked to someone who believes that, who believes in souls, but they believe that when you die, your soul essentially goes to sleep, 
in the body. This is actually something called soul sleep. It's something that's held by Seventh-day Adventists. It's a, it's, it is a, not a widespread, but a modern belief. This is why, because they have a modest view uh, of body and soul, that souls are essentially entrapped within the body. They have, they have no existence outside of a physical body. Uh, now, um, those who take this view are right uh, uh, it, 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 to affirm the unity of man's being, that we are body and soul together, that that is true human life. Uh, but they lean on that unity so much, so heavily, that they end up functionally denying the immaterial aspect of humanity. And they end up collapsing the soul and the body into this essentially one thing. And further, this, uh, this view, this monism view, denies Scripture, which clearly understands the soul to be immortal and capable to be separated from the human body in, in the presence of God with a self-awareness and consciousness. You have John's vision of the souls of the martyrs crying out before the throne of God in Revelation 6, verse 9. Later, the, he sees the souls of those killed for the faith in chapter 20, verse 4. Paul in Philippians 1 speaks about how much better it would be to depart from the body to be with the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, The dust of man returns to the earth and the spirit to God who gave it. Jesus said that there are those who can kill the body, but only one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Thus, body and soul can be separated by physical death. And what was it that Jesus told the, the, the thief on the cross? Right? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And we could go on. And so monism is not an acceptable position if we are to affirm the scriptures. The second is dichotomy. This is the position of the church and of Orthodox uh, Christianity. Um, And this is basically uh, the understanding that um, the life of man is uh, divided into body uh, and, and, uh, sorry, the, the material and the spiritual, the immaterial and material. And that is uh, you have the body and then soul and spirit are essentially synonyms. They're interchangeable. Uh, now, there, there's some debate. There may be some nuance to how soul is used and how spirit is used and like different perspectives of what, what you're talking about. It gets a bit uh, technical, um, but essentially uh, these two terms, soul and spirit, are together represent the immaterial aspect of human life. Isaiah 26.9, the prophet says, His soul yearns for God in the night, and his spirit earnestly seeks him. Now, um, now that is uh, now when you look at Isaiah, when you look at the prophets, you know when the, when the columns go from paragraphs into those thinner columns in your Old Testament when you're reading that, that's because that is Hebrew poetry, all right. And so what he's doing is he's using parallelism, what's called, and he's saying he's using one line and then he uses a synonym in the second line to establish making the same point. Okay, it's an artistic use of language. And so, he's, and so he's using, Isaiah is using soul and spirit as synonyms to make a point about longing for the Lord. Uh, and so um, you, can't, you can't separate these terms in terms of their uh, definition, really. 
And this view makes the best sense of Scripture. It allows for literary aspects of the biblical authors, like in poetry. It allows them to shine through without getting overly specific. Um, And so this understanding uh, further rejects the idea that we are um, simply souls that are just inhabiting bodies as if bodies are inherently a problem. And so, and so there's the view of dichotomy. The last view is trichotomy, uh, which basically says you have body and then soul and spirit are two unique separate things. That, uh, that the soul is what they call the principle of animal or creaturely life. Then the spirit would be the principle of our rational life, our will, that kind of idea. There's a whole host of problems with this view, uh, not least of which is the requirement to make all these very specific definitions fit, and it makes trying to, trying to understand Scripture incredi- incredibly difficult, and it just mixes things up. Further, how do you distinguish between two immaterial elements of human existence? Like, how do you dis- distinguish, actually distinguish between the two? And also we note that when God created man in Genesis 2-7, he did so from the dust with the breath of life, and the text says he became a living soul, not a living soul and a living spirit. And so, and so it's not to say that he gave Adam a soul and then gave him a spirit later, that he gave him animal life and then gave him rational life later. It doesn't make sense. So uh, there's more we can say, but it just when you do the math, this, this doesn't work. Um, it just, it makes, uh, basically it's an overly technical view of Scripture itself. It's somewhat similar to, um, I've, I've heard the sermon before where um, the, uh, um, it, so in, in, in the Gospel of John, after, P, after Jesus' resurrection, he goes to Peter, right? And he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? That scene. And, uh, and, and so there's a lot of pastors who have made a lot of hay about the fact that, uh, uh, that Jesus, Jesus uses uh, several times, he uses the word agape for love, which is, and, then, and then Peter uses the word phileo, and then they'll read a lot in that context and what he's saying. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, he's saying, Peter, do you love me sacrificially and selflessly like I love you? And Peter's like, no, I only phileo you. I, I love you like, like the, the brotherly love in the city of Philadelphia. You know, like that's how I love you. And, and, and uh, there's a lot of stuff. The problem is, is that John uses agape and phileo relatively interchangeably in his gospel. And so you can't really make this like clean meaning and cut between these Greek words. More significant is how many times Jesus asks Peter, does he love him? Three times. And why is that significant? Because Peter denied him three times. It was on the third time when he asked Peter, do you love me, that Peter said, it said Peter was grieved. Why? Because he knows how many times I denied him. And he asked me three times if I love him, right? Much more significant than, 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 than the wordplay there. It's just not the deep point that, unfortunately, many want it to be. But there is a deep point there. So at the end of the day, we need to simply see that man is more than flesh and blood. Conversely, man is more than just a soul that is inhabiting a body temporarily. That human life, as the Bible presents us, human life that is blessed and good, is both material and immaterial, physical and spiritual, joined together in the image of God. And so this brings us to how we were created. 
And uh, this is the uh, verse I referenced earlier, Genesis 2, 7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So man was made from dust, a physical creature with a body. Then unlike any other creature, he received the breath of life from God. And that is that humanity then, as one scholar wrote, is that is upheld by the very breath of God. And the Hebrew there says that he became a living soul. And notice that if you become a living soul, to truly be a living soul is to have a body. It's interesting also that in John, in Revelation 20, when he sees the souls of the dead come to life, they get bodies. And so, and so for a soul to come to life, it gets a body. And so and now we know where the bodies come from, the dust of the earth and the side of Adam as, uh, when it comes to Eve. And then through the normal generation uh, of children through parents, uh, we don't really argue that much over that uh, about, uh, uh, about how the bodies come. Uh, but uh, less clear is where the souls come from. What is the creation of the soul? How is the soul made? And there are um, three views I'm going to give you that have largely been around for a long time. The first view, the first two are pagan. Just so you, just to, so you know, uh, so the, so that you don't want the first two, right? Just let you know, right? So uh, the, there's the idea of preexistence. This goes back to Plato and the and basically uh, variations of this kind of the eternal existence of souls. That souls have been around for a long time before they received uh, bodies. Um, and that souls were enfleshed with bodies as some kind of punishment for moral defect or something went wrong and they got bodies. And, the, and so the goal then is to free the soul from the body. If the body is bad, if the body's like a prison, then you want to free the soul from the body. Now, Plato's view of the soul is still very common today in the broader culture and even in the church. Uh, there are even cults who, and heresies uh, that have this view of souls, like Mormons. If you ever have a Mormon that gives you a, a, a real uh, uh, the story of creation, they're going to talk about pre-existent souls uh, that, that receive bodies. Uh, same thing with Scientologists. Now that, include, now, that story includes spaceships. So it, it goes, I mean, it's fun, you know, but, uh, but, it's, but it's not, uh, it just goes weird. It did not help that uh, the ancient Christian writer Origen uh, argued for this view of the soul, uh, but also we note that Origen was very weird. Uh, so, and yes, he was the guy that castrated himself and later said, I regret that decision. So, uh, as we would expect him to do. Now, uh, so there's the issue of preexistence. So that is, uh, that's one pagan view. Uh, the other pagan view is emanation. The emanation is the, the view that souls are not works of creation by God. They're not, they're not the potter working with clay. They are rather emanations uh, um, uh, from God's very substance, from his being. They come off of himself. This view of the soul is at the heart of many Eastern religions like Hinduism or Buddhism. That if, if our souls are emanations off of the one true God, well, then the goal then is to return to the one, right? To become one with our creator. And so that's why you hear that type, because that's that type of view of the soul. This is also, there's um, 
the, the Gnostic teachings that corrupted some of the church uh, in the first, uh, in the second and third century, uh, had some of this stuff going on. But so these two are the pagan views, but you still see them popularized today in, ver- in a variety of cults and religions uh, and corruptions within the church. So you just keep your eye out for them. But then there is the Christian view, the biblical view, that souls are works, distinct works of creation by God. Works of immaterial substance, to be sure, but they are actual works of creation. And, um, and so uh, the debate here is, how does God make these souls? It's not, does he, from Christian standpoint of view, but how does he do it? Does God uh, create souls immediately like a potter working with clay? Or, are, or does God use, make souls in, uh, it, what the, what, it, through a immediate mode, which is saying that does God use, just like God uses parents to create the bodies of children, does God also use parents to create the souls of those children? Do somehow the souls of children, are they produced through the intermingling of souls of the parents? And, um, and, uh, and, the, and the answer to this, after searching many, many systematic theologies, <laughs> the answer is we don't have enough biblical data to really be confident of one answer or the other. Although I will give you my view of it, which is that souls are the personal, immediate creation of God which he joins to the bodies of his people at their conception. So um, now there's lots of interesting details of this, of this in-house debate, uh, but uh, what is not debated is that man is physical and spiritual through the creative work of God. Okay, but what does any of that have to do with resurrection? Right? What does this have to do with resurrection? Well, remember, resurrection, according to Paul, is ultimately about solving the problem with creation. What is the problem with creation? It is fallen. And that means we die. And what happens when we die? Our souls are separated from our bodies. They go to be with the Lord. And so in Adam, all men have fallen into sin. The fall affects the whole man, body and soul. We are thoroughly corrupted. And that means that the solution that God provides must address both fallen souls and fallen bodies. It must address the whole person. Jesus died and was raised not only to save our souls, but also to save our bodies. And so uh, when we're Christians and we die, our soul departs our body and enters immediately into the presence of God and Christ. Our body is laid into the grave. But that is not the end of the story. The gospel says that the experience of the grace of God is not complete until we experience the resurrection. Well, why is that? Well, because we just spent the first part of the sermon talking about Because man is more than a soul. Man is more than a body. Man is body and soul by the creation of God in the image of God. We are as God made us, and we will be as God redeems us. Now, having kind of cleared the road there and make sure we got our heads on straight here, now we can get into um, 
what uh, creation teaches us about the resurrection. This will be actually briefer than the first part. Because as we look at this, I want you to notice here how Paul utilizes the created order in verses 35 to 41 of 1 Corinthians 15 in order to shape our understanding of the resurrection. He uses what what has come before to help us understand what is to come yet. And so we can boil down what Paul says here into two points. And, And the first point is simply this. What you reap is different than what you sow. What you reap is different than what you sow. The person Paul imagines here asking this question is not someone asking it sincerely. Uh, because it's kind of because you're like, Paul's a little harsh. Because <laughs> like, I'm wondering, what does a resurrection body look like? And he says, You foolish person. You're like, Ah, sorry, I'm not going to ask you a question again. No, it's well, the person who's asking this is asking it like a Sadducee, like someone who doesn't believe in resurrection, who is skeptical, who is almost mocking in their tone and how they're saying it. They're like, How could even thing be? It's, it's laughable. That such a thing could be conceived. Remember, the Greeks don't. The Greeks and Romans don't believe resurrection is possible. The Sadducees think uh, don't believe it's possible, and even the Pharisees, even though they thought it was it was going to happen at some point, that definitely wasn't happening now. So, how could such a thing be conceived of? Well, Paul says, "Look, you're you're a nonsensical person because all you need to do is look around you, and you can learn something." And so now bear in mind, Paul has already given proof of Christ's resurrection at the beginning of the chapter. He has restated the fact and the implications of, Paul, of Christ's resurrection in verses 20 to 28. And, and so Paul here says, think about when you harvest a crop. Where did it start? It started with a seed. And he's not making a scientific argument here. He's simply making an analogy. He's saying, look, when you put the seed into the ground, it, 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 in effect, it dies. The form of that body dies because what comes up out of the ground is not just like you don't put a seed in the ground and then what comes up is a big seed, right? It transforms, it changes. What comes out of the ground is different than what you put into it. And this is, and this is the work of God, Paul says, by his will, by his choice. The reason a seed has one body and the plant that it produces another type of body is that God has chosen to make it so and in creation. Likewise, if our earthly bodies that are riddled with curse of this, the curse of this world are planted into the ground, as it were, and, and then given the reality of the resurrection of the people of God, it would reasonably follow that our bodies would be very different when we are risen. And so for Paul, resurrection comes through the work of the creator. That's where he begins. When he thinks about resurrection, he thinks about what has God already done? What has he already made? And, so, and, and just as a seed gets planted into the ground and comes up like a plant, so when we are planted into the ground in death, we will rise different. And that means that death for the people of God is simply a planting in preparation for the harvest of life and a resurrection when the time comes. Secondly, Paul tells us to listen to the testimony of earth from earth to heaven. Verses 38 to 41. Just as God has given each kind of seed its own body, so Paul says... God has given a a great variety of flesh and types of flesh to the creatures. 
Different kind for humans, different kind for animals, different kinds for birds, different kinds for fish. He, God is very good at creating different environments, sea, earth, sky, and space, and then, and then giving creatures bodies that are fit for those environments. He gives birds the, the bodies they need to be able to fly, animals that they, they need, the bodies they need to be able to operate on the earth, fish the bodies they need to be able to operate under the water. God's very good about giving bodies fit for their environments. And likewise, God is still very good uh, at when you go out to space. God is really good at decorating, isn't he? He's really good at it. When we got, when Boaz and I went fishing, um, and uh, we got up at 5 a.m. over at Perdido Key, and we got up, and you could see four planets that morning. Four planets all lined up in a row. Right, and they look like big old stars, but it was cool. You're like, I'm standing on one of them, and I can see four. That's pretty awesome. All right, and so it's a, I'm seeing over half of our galaxy because we don't count Pluto anymore. So that's just sad. But, um, uh, but but as we but he says, look, there's even a variety, not only of flesh, but a variety of splendor. When you look at the things on the earth, but also when you look up into the heavens, and you see how planets and stars and all these things differentiate from each other and the glory, that, that, that the splendor that they give off, even that is different. And she says, look, God is very good about making different things and things that are fit for the right things and the right places and the right spaces. And the point simply here is that our God is able. Paul's singular point here is that a healthy theology of creation will inform us about the future resurrection. It's not all there is to say, but there is more information around you than you might think. Just as what we plant is different than what we sow, so our bodies are sown into the ground in death and raised while still connected, still identifiable, yet gloriously different. Just as God has made bodies fit for a variety of environments for all the creatures of this planet, God is able to make bodies for us that will be fit for the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God. And just as there are differing degrees of splendor from, uh, from, from, in, from planet to planet and star to star in space, so God is able to make glorious things of the dust of the earth as we are. And so looking at God's creativity, power, and variety in creation from plants to stars, we can conclude that it's reasonable for God to be able to create for us a resurrection body in the future that we have not experienced or seen yet. Because the environment's not here that necessitates it. Yet we, in his kindness, he has given an example, a pattern of a resurrection body that, will, that we will follow in, and that is the resurrection body of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we're wrapping this up, we are more than animals that think, as our culture wants to tell us. We are more than spirits trapped in the flesh, as many heresies and, and cults might even want to tell us. We are humans made in the image of God in body and soul. And the testimony of creation provides us with ample reason to have every confidence, especially in connection with the gospel, 
that God will provide for us resurrection bodies that will be fit for the glories of what is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only do you, you don't just give us promises that we just have to wholly look to the future and just in complete and absolute trust with no information, with no knowledge, no nuance, nothing added to it. But Lord, you actually give us so much information all around us from the very beginning. You show us, you testify to us that you are the God who is able. You are the God who is able to fit us for the kingdom of God, who is able to raise us from death to life who is able to give us a new form of existence in eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we clarify our understanding of body and soul and what human life means, that we would also take encouragement and strength from the testimony of creation, that we would build out for ourselves a robust theology of creation that would strengthen our faith and trust that you are the God who is able and that you will resurrect us in the end. Even, uh, and even in, the, in that time as we look forward to the moment when we will be in your presence as disembodied souls. We know that that is not the end there. That there is a time coming where we will live in glory and body and soul. Resurrection, glory and life. And Lord, we look forward to that day. For that is when Jesus will have returned. The gospel promises will be made full. And Lord, you will be in glory. Uh, You will be glorious before our, our very eyes, our resurrection eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.